open up in a word of prayer actually as we begin. Father, we are so thankful uh, to be able to gather in your house tonight. What a joy it is to be saved. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, God, I pray that as we come together tonight that your word would be in front of us and our wisdom and our understanding. Uh, Bless our time together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we are glad to have you with us tonight. I want to welcome you to Lighthouse. It's been a while since I've been here on a Wednesday to preach. Uh, Sunday, I was so glad to be able to uh, preach here. Uh, my, we had a revival here uh, a couple weeks ago, and then I was away for a revival. So uh, we're glad to have you with us tonight for a Wednesday service. And uh, if you have a prayer request tonight, just raise your hand. We got some guys coming around with green prayer cards. And if you want us to pray for that out loud at the end, uh, just write that request out. And uh, if you want us to keep that private where we don't read that out loud, but we just pray for that as a staff, just write the word private in large letters across the top, and we won't mention that prayer request publicly. You could also submit your prayer requests online. And... uh, Couple prayer, uh, a couple uh, announcements coming up. We have a fall family day, uh, October 22nd. Uh, take note of that. There's some sign-ups in the foyer. Uh, you can sign up for. Uh, we started our re-engage this last Sunday. We had uh, over 100 people involved in that. Super excited uh, for that. And uh, also, uh, we have um, October 7th, not this Saturday, but the following Saturday, men's prayer breakfast at 7 a.m. Men, if you could schedule time there. Uh, life group leaders meeting uh, the following Sunday, October 8th as well. Creation Museum trip at the end of October. Uh, some other activities and events going on. Card shower for uh, the Rogers. Uh, you can put those in the box out in the foyer there. So, uh, Also, praise the Lord, we had six folks get baptized Sunday, two in the early and four in the late, man, those testimonies were such a blessing. And uh, we had uh, missionary Russ Turner, uh, who ministers in the Amazon jungles. Uh, he was here with us on Sunday, and uh, he was able to speak to the teens. He's passing through from, I believe, Michigan. Uh, so he got back into God's country, came down here, and, uh, you know, was heading down south. And we put him up in a hotel, furnished that for him, and asked if he could share an update with the church. He spoke to the teens. That was a blessing. And he goes into tribes and places that you and I couldn't even imagine. I mean, he... He is, uh, he is one of those unique missionaries that just really has been after it for 45 years. And, uh, and we gave him from the church, we, when, when guys come through, we give him a love offering from our missions uh, to him anyway. And I had mentioned, I said, hey, if you see him on the way out, just put, put something in his hand, be a blessing to him. And, and, uh, and he had, I mean, there were several hundred dollars that people had given to him. And he, over $600, he said, just thank you so much for your kindness. And, I mean, he had it down to the penny. He said, that's going exactly to this tribe here and this, you know, I mean, he's, he's uh, not even looking for anything to help him in his, you know, take, go out to eat, get a nice meal, <laughs> you know, take care of yourself. But he's such a, such a humble servant. We so appreciate him. But uh, amen for that grace. And so tonight we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 6, um, And if you find your place there in God's Word, I invite you to stand as we honor the Word of God. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed preaching at uh, a revival at Brother Nathan Woodworth's church uh, last week. It was because he's a uh, sister church of ours. It's like being at Lighthouse in Xenia, uh, just a smaller version of that. But it's just a, I mean, they are packed. Their, Their sanctuary holds... 
about 130 people, and man, it was packed, two services on Sunday morning, packed Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and uh, it was just exciting to see that church thriving, people being saved, baptized, and uh, what a blessing to have a, a man preaching the Word of God faithfully over there and to, to be a small part of that. You know, Lighthouse, we supported them, sent thousands of dollars to help that church get started, supported those guys, and uh, what a joy. Let's read verse uh, 11 down to 18 here as we jump back into our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul's writing to this church, and he tells them in verse number 11, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. I understand in the uh, King James kind of older English, that's a little confusing reading through those verses. I'll explain those and you will understand uh, in a moment. Verse 14, he says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? You are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. What an incredible promise. Father, again, we pray that your word would find root in our hearts. Lord, we want to be faithful, Lord, as, as your people. You've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And as we walk through this world, sometimes it's hard to navigate situations. Sometimes it's hard to know what to be involved in, what not to be involved in. How far does separation go? What does it mean to be unequally yoked? Uh, Does that involve business dealings, friendships, marriages? What all does that involve? And so we pray tonight your word would be unleashed upon our hearts tonight. Give us wisdom to walk in as God's people in a world in darkness. And may you be glorified in that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this evening. I love Lighthouse. I feel like I'm so blessed to be just a member here. And uh, then to be able to serve in the capacity of a pastor at Lighthouse is such a joy you know, and then I feel even more overjoyed when I read and study, uh, spent a couple years teaching through 1 Corinthians and now 2 Corinthians, and um, I'm thinking, man, I'm so thankful that I didn't have to pastor the church at Corinth, and uh, the church was just nonstop problems, so thank you for not being a church at Corinth, all right? I uh, appreciate that so much. Uh, but even as much as God has blessed us here, uh, there's always room for improvement, amen? Uh, one reason is because I'm the pastor, and uh, I still have a long way to go to be like Christ. And the other reason is because you're the people, and, uh, and, and you have a long way to go to be like Christ. And so we're in this together, aren't we? Uh, we're seeking to be like the Lord, and, but I praise God that, that he's brought us to where we are. Um, but as we study these things in, in the book of uh, Corinthians, we, we, we can see some of the problems there, uh, not taking the church whole here like it has there, but, but symptoms of that can spring up in, in individual lives. And, uh, and, and it can infect people. And so tonight I want to look at two warnings that Paul gives to the church at Corinth that I believe that will be a great blessing for us tonight. 
One is the warning of unbiblical isolation. The other is the warning of unbiblical separation. And this is kind of a unique message, and so I'm so thankful to do verse-by-verse studies because it causes me to preach on things that I wouldn't typically have thought to preach on. And so... um, First is unbiblical isolation. He tells them in verse number 11, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. So here you have Paul who loved the church at Corinth. I mean, he just never gave up on them. He actually wrote four letters to this church, two that were inspired, two that were not inspired. And we know that he wrote two other letters, at least two other letters, because he talks about those letters in the book of Corinthians. And... Paul's enlarged heart toward the Corinthians spoke about here his deep love for them. This wasn't a health condition that he had enlarged heart. It was a love condition that he had. And it caused him to speak openly to them, to to speak clearly, to share his heart with them. Now, one thing that love does is it speaks to what is necessary and most helpful for people. And so love will do two things. It will both restrain a person's mouth and it will open a person's mouth. If you love someone, it will restrain you from saying certain things. Evil speech, hateful, unkind words, uh, prideful debates, energized, selfish motive. Love restrains a person from saying things that are based on selfish desires. I would ask you, do you have a mouth that shows restraint? But secondly, love will also cause you to open your mouth to others to speak that which is beneficial. Uh, when your mouth is enlarged, your uh, heart is enlarged towards somebody, your mouth will be too. And, and when you love others, you will evangelize. You will tell them of Christ. Uh, love engages people with hard conversations when it's necessary. Uh, love will tackle hard problems. It will resolve conflict. Love will share burdens that they have with other people for their benefit. Now here in verse 4 through 10, Paul had poured out his heart to them in, in very glowing language. In, in verse uh, verse 20, um, I should say back in, in chapter 6 here, verse 7 up to verse number 10, he actually gives them 27 points. And we actually covered all 27 characteristics last time, which if you weren't here, that was a slight miracle. Uh, but... Uh, but he gave them nine negative, negative elements that must be endured to be a faithful minister. He gave, talked about nine positive attributes, and then he gave nine paradoxes. They weren't just thoughts thrown together, uh, but in verse 7 through 10, he just really lays out some of those thoughts very clearly. But, but, but the point being, he poured his heart out to them. Like, like he, he, he made himself vulnerable, he exposed his heart to them, he opened his mouth to them, he shared with them what was going on in his life. And when you have an open heart towards somebody, you, you're open to share your ups and downs, your victories, your defeats, your blessings, your problems. Paul poured all of these things out to the Corinthians. He shared his life with them. And to be open to someone, listen, is to be loving to them. On the other hand, to be closed off to someone is to show a lack of love, to isolate, to be distant, and to close down is a loveless quality. But the Corinthians did not reciprocate Paul's love back. As they should have, they questioned him. They allowed evil speech against them. They tolerated false teachers and slandering Paul. They doubted Paul's love for them. They didn't show Paul the love that Paul showed back to them. Second Corinthians twelve fifteen, he says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. He says, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. I'm pouring love out to you, but you're not bringing it back to me. Have you ever had that happen in your life where you, you went out of your way to do something for someone and, and it's like they, you know, they just didn't reciprocate love back or sometimes parents feel that with their kids? 
Ouch, yeah, amen. That can happen with parents. That can happen sometimes, uh, parents to kids. It, it can go in a lot of relationships, friendship relationships. It can happen inside of churches. It can happen with neighbors and all of these things. And, and so Paul tells them in verse 12, the problem of their lack of love that they did not express to Paul was not due to Paul, but it was due to their own heart condition. He says in verse 12, ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own, own bowels. Now, let me explain a couple of these words. The word straightened there means restricted. It's, it, it comes from a, the, the root word phlebo, which means like straight, narrow place, like to be strained in your spirit. Like you're not strained, your, your spirit is not narrow and restricted. And, and then he says, the, the and you're not straightened or narrow and restricted in your love, in other words, but you are straightened in your own bowels. The word bowels there is an interesting word because when we think of bowels, we think of something very different than what they did. You know, if you start talking about your bowels, somebody's like, you need to change the conversation, you know. But, but back then, the bowels, uh, which, which it, it is a Greek word that means like your, your inner, just really your inner area there, your bowels area, but it's, it's, it would, the the word we would use would be the heart. So, but you don't, you don't feel those feelings in your chest cavity, right? If you do that, you're at the hospital. Take me there. I feel some, feel some crazy feelings in my heart. But when we talk about that, when you get nervous, it's in your stomach, isn't it? When you get fluttered and all those feelings, they come from inside of your gut and, and you would wrench it in your stomach. And so that's the word they use. They, they, the, the heart, when the, Jew, when the Bible talks with, about the heart, it's talking about the intellect, the cognitive, the, the knowledge capacity. But when it talks about the bowel, it's like, you know, their, their heart. So you, I could look at my wife and say, baby, I love you with all of my bowels. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how many feet there are, but they're all yours, you know. Yes, yes ma'am. <laughs> she is not impressed. She is not impressed. Yes. <laughs> you have moved my bowels, baby. You are something else. But Paul is saying, that's too far. I'm sorry. <laughs> now you know what kind of husband I am. To tea. I like to tease with my wife. But Paul is saying, any restriction and narrowness in your love, he said, is not based on, on, on Paul or on us. We have loved you openly. We've loved you fully and clearly. The restraint is from your own heart. You, you have chosen not to do this. You know, sometimes people can blame other people for their lack of love, but true biblical love is not based on the goodness of the receiver. It's based on the goodness of God. Uh, we love people not because they're good enough. We love people because Christ is good enough. And so God's love for us and mankind was never based on our worthiness, right? I mean, God didn't look at us and say, you know what, you guys are so wonderful. I think I'll love you. You know, the Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and that's how he proved his love to us. Hosea 14, 4 says, I will love them freely, God said, of Israel. So, so he loves us in a free manner in which we are also to do that to the world. Now, love needs to respond. There needs to be a response. In verse 13, he highlights this. He says, now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. He's simply saying, show me the same love that I've shown you. Paul speaks as a spiritual father to his children in the faith. Uh, and just as a parent shows sacrificial love to their children, which can often be taken for granted by children, Paul says to reciprocate that love back to them. 
And um, have you ever been hurt by a child that can be cold to you, show you a lack of love, especially when you've gone out of your way to love them sacrificially? And that's what Paul was dealing with as a spiritual father here to the Corinthians. And they had wounded him, and he felt that. He is not asking them to give to him something financially. He's saying, I just want your love. And so to love others, is, this is important to understand. It is a selfless act. It is to value others to the point of making oneself vulnerable. And that is why those who do not open up to others show a lack of love. And I think this has become somewhat of a pandemic in our culture. I, I, think, I think what has happened is we have a culture that many people have been hurt by people in life. They don't always understand this psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. But what they do is they've learned the only person they think they can trust is themselves. So instead of being open to other people, they close down. And they usually only let a couple people inside of those walls. I mean, just a handful at most. And, and, and there's only a very small number of people they let in there. And if they get burnt, they cut them off and just, they get real cold and real hard. And, 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 and all I knew was going to happen. But ultimately what that is, that's self-loving. Because it's, it's an act that says I'm not willing to make myself vulnerable to care for other people. It's a self-preservation. C.S. Lewis said this, to love is to be vulnerable. And so to open up and love others means you value them enough to open your heart up to them. To care about them and them for you. Some Christians can be so loveless and cold and distant, they keep love in a safe place because they care about themselves more than other people. They're more concerned with their comfort than other people. I remember having, uh, before having children, I thought, you know, and I, I remember talking to Candace at different points about this through the years. I said, you know, if we, we bring another child into the world or our first child into the world, and as the children rolled on, one after another, after another, after another, you know, after another? No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> no mods, no mods. Um, I thought, you know, that, that child's going to bring such joy into our life, and it will. So much happiness, so many wonderful memories. Not even born yet, but, but, but just, just thinking out. And I thought, but every, every child, I thought every child we have, there's a potential of incredible pain as well. The, the, the same level of love and joy you can feel can result in the correspondence of the same amount of pain you can feel. But, but what it is, is this. You have to make yourself vulnerable enough to love someone at that level to take the risk of the pain that could come. Does that make sense? Most people anymore aren't willing to do that, to take the risk, so they're not willing to love. They have a very narrow life. And they think the problem's outside of them, and it's not, it's inside. And they need to repent and get right with God about that situation. It's not right. It's not okay. And God is not okay with it. And so this is, this is an issue I, I fear that has gripped so many young people also in our culture. You know, love takes risks. It puts itself out there. It values people enough to pay a price if necessary. It values them. Friend, are you loving? Are you, are you open to people? Do you show love, care, concern for others? Or do you isolate, keep to yourself and not engage other people? Do you stay to yourself? Ask this question. What kind of church would LBC be if every person were just like me? 
would this, when, when, when you came in, would, would this be a warm church? You know, I come in here and I feel like everybody's greeting each other. I mean, that's just like a big family, you know. We, we shake hands and I'm like, can you guys stop being so kind so I can get on with the service? You know, I'm teasing. But, uh, but there, even, even in a warm church like this, people can sometimes become cold. And so if, if every person were like you, would, would this church be distant, cold, impersonal? Would, would Paul have to write and rebuke you? Would he say, open your heart up, what are you doing? Why are you acting like that? C.S. Lewis goes on to say, love anything and your heart will continually be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, a safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, unpenetratable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can have perfectly, be perfectly safe from all danger of love is in hell. And friends, I don't want to be that person. You're, you're worth my risk. It saddens me to see Christians who isolate themselves to be distant from other believers. Christians who feel it's okay to do church online instead of being in church. There is no such thing as online church. If you're sick, it's better than nothing. If you're homesick, praise God, glad you're, you're, you're tuning in. If you get home at 7, it's the only thing you got. Some people are driving home. We have hundreds of people that tune in online from different places around the country. We praise God for that opportunity. But, but church involves human beings, doesn't it? I, I need handshake. I need a hug. I need, I need people. I miss you when I'm gone. I go on vacation. I, I always look forward to coming back. I always look forward to being at church. I, this sounds weird. I am somewhat of an, I am, to be honest, I'm an introverted person. Now, I know you'll laugh and you'll think it's weird. And you're like, oh, no, no, Pastor Josh. I am. I'm really uh, kind of an introverted guy. I've just always kind of been that way. I'd be the guy that could go out and fish or something and kind of be by myself and kind of be content doing that. I got a little brother. He's got people around him all the time. He's always around. I mean, he enters. Like, but it's weird. It's like, but at church, like, I am like, he's, God's turned me into like this extrovert that just, I'm energized by you. Like, I love this. And I think it's because God's given me such a heart for his people. And it's only of God he's changed me in that manner. And so... But it saddens me when Christians isolate themselves. Don't, don't do that, friends. And, and if, if you find yourself doing that, it, it's not something God wants. Christians who can come and sit in a service, not even think about who's, what's going on around them, not thinking about making other people feel welcome, not even thinking about greeting people. Friend, when you come to church, do you consider people sitting around you who may have different needs? Do you ever think of how some here uh, may not have a real family at home that loves them and maybe this is the only handshake they'll get all week? It's the only hug they'll ever get? It's the only place that anybody would ever ask them, how are you doing? And really mean it. Do, do, do you know the people in your row, if you sit in your row typically in the same area, which we're, you know, we come to this church, you're at Lighthouse, so you, you all have assigned seats, right? So... <laughs> At least you think you do. I, I like to go sit in people's seats just to get them out of it. And they're like, where do I even go? Where do I go? He sits, sitteth in my seateth. You know, it's, it's a president imperative. He keeps sitting there. So, but they, you know, you should know the people's names in your row. 
And if you, if you can sit in the same seat for month after month after month and not know the people's name in a row, the question is, why wouldn't you care enough to at least find out those people's names? Now, again, we have 650 people here on Sunday morning. You're not going to know everybody's name. I don't know everybody's name. But, but if I'm in, I should learn the people in my class and, and, and close to me and, and begin to, to know them. Start somewhere. Uh, are you content to come week after week and not know that stuff? Some churches can be so stoic, too. I've, I've been to churches that have, they're supposedly reverential. There's kind of this sound going in the background. It's like, uh, you know, it's like some Latin prayers going on somewhere. You know, I don't know what's, you know, just, just this, this orthodoxy. It's cold. There's no warmth. Very structured. Very cold. They, they won't even amen anything, you know. Laughter is unacceptable. No clapping of hands, that is godless behavior. You know, the Bible talks about lifting holy hands and making a joyful noise and all of that, but not there. You know, this, this, is, what, this is what Judaism turned into. It was a cold orthodoxy. This is what happened during just the cold orthodoxy that took over the, much of Christendom for hundreds and hundreds of years. And you see that spirit even among the disciples when they were bringing children to Jesus. Matthew 19, 13, Then were brought unto him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. I'm sure two of them were singing a song in the background, you know. And bring those little kids away, you know, forbid them. And, 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 and Jesus, look how he responds in verse 4. He said, suffer, that means allow, allow little children to, and forbid them not to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. What, what is that? that? That means that Jesus was approachable. God in flesh was approachable. And he opened his life up. He was vulnerable. He, was, he, he did life with them. And he, and he held their children. He blessed them. He cared. Jesus is not cold. He's not the God of the agnostic. He's not distant. And if God's not distant, let us not be like him. A couple years ago, I had someone at church who came from that kind of a church and uh, we were shaking hands one day, and I said, hey, how are you doing? And he's like, like you know, and this is what they said, you know, I really don't like this part of service when you have us shake hands. And I was like, do you not like welcoming people? I mean, do you not like, uh, is it uncomfortable to talk to other Christians at church and tell them you're glad they're here? Is that the part you don't like? Is it uncomfortable to care enough to get away from your assigned seat and share life with somebody else? You, oh, you must not care enough about the people, right? You, you, so, so are you so concerned with yourself, you, don't, you would rather not know anyone else but your little close circle, is that right? Heaven's got something coming for you, friend. Because you're not going to have a little corner where you can isolate yourself from, not shake anybody's hand, not greet anybody. People like that just don't last here. They, they just don't last. It's too uncomfortable. People are too like friendly, like somebody hugged me. You know, it's like <laughs> And so, friends, we live in a cold world. It's getting colder. People have their face stuck in their 
iPhones, their iPads, their tablets and devices. People don't want to talk anymore. They don't want to take time to talk to others. And the first warning Paul gives here is a warning of isolation, a cold indifference to the warmth of love around you. When you come to church, be warm, be friendly, be kind. And, and let, me, let me talk to this for just a moment. I think our prayer time on Wednesdays is one of the great ways you can do that. At the end of our service tonight, we take time to pray for one another. Now, why do we do that? A couple reasons. One, we believe in prayer. I mean, I'm going to read several prayer requests tonight at the end of services I do every Wednesday. And there's some serious needs. People need to be prayed for. There's some surgeries. I've been at the hospital this week praying for people. I've been on the phone right before service praying with the dear lady in our church. There's people going through some heavy stuff. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. We believe God answers prayer. We want to pray. Secondly, because we love people. People need to be prayed for. So, so is prayer worth taking 5, 10, 15 minutes for tonight? Is a conversation with your neighbor and God more important than a conversation in the hallway for 15 minutes until Awana lets out? At the end of service, we do that because it's important to take time to ask someone to sit next to you, is there anything I can pray for you about? I, I've done that at church, and I've had people well up with tears just by asking, hey, man, you know, mind if I pray with you? Is there anything I can pray for you about tonight? What if I don't know their name? We'll get their name. What, what if you're the last thing between them and walking out of here and never coming back? What if you're the last thing between them walking out of here, getting high, getting drunk, getting divorced, going down a dark road, going down some evil path, and you caring enough to say, hey, can I take a minute and talk with you and pray with you? Is, is that soul worth that? To learn their name, to pray for them and their needs? I, I find it's one of the most enjoyable things I do in the week. I so look forward to that. Now, now, some of you perhaps cannot stay for various reasons because maybe you have to get home and there's something you've got to get and you're pressed on time. But if you do have time, what does it say about how much a person actually believes in prayer and loves other people when they won't even take the time to marry the two together? It must be I don't believe prayer actually works because I don't want to do it and I don't care enough about the person sitting next to me to take the time to ask them if they have anything I could pray for. Say, Pastor, are you going to like stand outside and see who leaves tonight? No, no. And if somebody leaves, that's between them. Lord, I have no concern for that person's uh, in a negative way. If they got to go, praise God. I trust that they have a reason for that. And maybe they're going out to do the Lord's work even greater by leaving early. There's, that's not the issue. And we're not here to, 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 to look who stays and who goes. That's not the issue at all. I just think, I just think there's, there's something problematic when you have a church in here praying and then you have a bunch of people feel comfortable to go outside just to talk in the hallways, just to fellowship. Hey, we need to fellowship, but it needs to be in prayer. <laughs> we believe that so 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 take some time on that and, and and listen and have a right spirit well if you're gonna make me pray then I'm not gonna come to church next Wednesday this will be the last Wednesday well you can act like a teenager ouch probably shouldn't have said that but I did I'm gonna shoot it straight you you came to lighthouse you go you know what you're gonna get right preacher gonna tell you like it is what do you think God's going to say? What do you think the Lord's going to say one day? 
I've had people say some of the most immature things to me. People say, well, I don't feel comfortable to pray with others. When did Christianity become a comfortable thing? If it was about comfort, I resign pastoring Lighthouse tonight. I resign. This will be the last sermon I ever preach here. If it was about comfort. But if it's about love, I will preach until the day I die. I will never quit because you're worth it. I, I'm, I'm, I will continue on. So when you love others, value them enough to be made uncomfortable. That's what Paul's dealing with here. He's like, we, we've opened our mouth. We've loved you. What is, why are you keeping love from us? Why are you just so isolated and, and, and reserved and, and pulling back? And, and that was happening there. That's, that's the first obstacle that can hinder a ministry's health. And it can be so devastating. It's so devastating. The second is a warning of unbiblical association. It's like two opposites. Look at verse 14. So if isolation is the first problem, wrong association is the second one. He says in verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. So what is a yoke? Since we're all farmers, uh, obviously makes sense. So a yoke is a wooden device placed on a pair of oxen. It was fitted like a collar around them. Uh, like the old uh, Charles Ingalls days. Who remembers the name Charles Ingalls? Raise your hand if you don't know the name Charles Ingalls. I'm curious. Oh! oh! Carl. Everybody. Somebody get this man a little house on the prairie DVD, all right? Come on now. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Can't even make the illustration. I can't even. Yeah, you better scoot up here a little bit closer to the altar. Stop the service in mid-path here. So a yoke is something that a farmer would do. They would put it on a pair of oxen, two oxen, and you would want two oxen that were compatible. You wouldn't want a young ox and an old ox because they would be, one would be strong and one would be weak. You, you, you wouldn't want two different sizes and you wouldn't want two different animals. A donkey with an oxen wouldn't work because a donkey could never keep up with the power of the oxen. You, you need two compatible animals. Now, what a yoke did was basically it made a pair work as one. What was two behaves as one. They're, they're united together. And he says here, so be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Don't yoke yourself to unbelievers. Now, I'm going to talk here in just a little bit about what a yoke is and, and how that applies spiritually. But let me explain what he says in some of these verses first. So he says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he says, here's reasons why. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Now, I think it's interesting that the way Paul teaches is with questions. And this is second level teaching. If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, begin to learn to ask wise questions. Statements condemn, questions convict. Learn to ask wise questions to really everybody in your life, because you don't want to always do the thinking for people. Uh, I do this in my preaching all the time. I ask questions throughout the sermon very intentionally because I want you to think about what you've heard. And there'll be times in the sermon where I'll ask a question, and that's when you feel that penetration like of that thought, like now i got to take this personally, like how am I going to deal with this? So, uh, so Paul says, he, he asks five questions here. And, and he says, what fellowship... Uh, it, it's, a, it's a Greek word which means sharing in the same purpose and activities. It's not koinonia, it's, it's a Greek word, metoke, uh, and, it, and it could be translated as partnership as well. So what fellowship or what partnership? 
and he uses the word righteousness. Righteousness just means that which is right with God. Unrighteousness speaks of not living right with God. So Paul is asking, how can you have fellowship? How can you share in the same purpose and activities with one whose life is not built on the same standards that your life is built upon? A Christian is concerned about living a life that's right with God. An unbeliever is concerned about living a life to please themselves. One is a hedonist and one is a worshiper of God. How can you walk in unity with those that are walking in the opposite direction? Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together except they be agreed? Second Corinthians goes on to say in verse 14, and what communion hath light with darkness? You know, darkness and light are complete opposites. You actually define darkness by saying it's the absence of light and vice versa. And so the word communion there is the well-known Greek word koinonia. It means sharing together, having in common. And it describes a close association involving mutual interests, sharing in activities, joint participation. And so before we were saved, the Bible is clear, our heart was darkened, we were blinded to the truth, we did works of darkness, we followed the dark and evil pattern of this life. Ephesians 5.8 says, for ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord, now we're to walk as children of light. So those in dark, darkness in the Bible speaks about those who do not understand, they don't get it, they, 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 they lack spiritual insight, they have dull senses spiritually. And it's not that we have something in ourselves that gives us insight. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God's grace that brought that to us. So light in Scripture speaks of two things. Purity uh, could also be involved in salvation, the purity of that, sanctification. But then also understanding, enlightenment, opening our eyes up to the truth. Paul is saying you cannot live in the light of truth and walk with somebody who is in darkness and blindness of heart and absent to the truth. He goes on to say in verse 15, what concord hath Christ with Belial? So light and darkness could be referring to um, two kingdoms. Kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness cannot coexist in, in agreement. And now you have the two kings of those kingdoms. Christ, the kingdom of light, and Belial, the kingdom of darkness. And these two kings are at war. The word Belial is a, it's a Hebrew noun made up of Belai, which means without, and Yal, which means benefit. It means without benefit, or translated as worthless, or worthlessness. It's another name for Satan in the Bible. So he says, what concord hath Christ with Belial? The word concord is an interesting word as well. It comes from uh, uh, the Greek word symphonesis. So soon means together in phone, which means sound. It's where we get our English word symphony from. Uh, which a symphony is a unison of sounds and harmony. And here it speaks about the harmony of people's opinions, actions, character, being in unison with one another, having united interests. So how can you be in concord, be in harmony, as it were in a symphony with Satan? How is that possible? That, that's not possible. It is in fact treason. It's an act of treason against King Jesus to be in tune with Satan and his kingdom of darkness. He goes on to say in verse 15, Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? The word part there, how, what, what part, how can you share in common with somebody who is an infidel? The word um, believer there is pistos in the Greek. It's somebody that means, it means um, somebody who believes one is worthy, trustworthy, uh, dependable, 
You're unwavering in your belief. So a believer is someone who sees Christ and says, I trust him. I am unwavering in my belief in him. The word for infidel is apistos. So the prefix a or the letter a negates it. It turns it into a negative. It means I don't believe he is at all trustworthy. Christ is not dependable. Uh, It is the opposite of a believer. It's what the Bible says here is an infidel. So how can you align your life up with someone who doesn't believe in Christ? The one you're devoted to, they reject. Verse 16, he goes on and says, What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. McShane says, The downfall of Israel, God's earthly people, was the result of idolatry. If saints in any way become involved in the same evil the result must be no less drastic. So those that are not saved, in fact, all unbelievers, are idolaters. We all worship something. We're created to worship. We respond to greatness. We worship sin, self, stuff, or the Son of God. And Paul says, what agreement, what agreement can God's temple have with idols? And notice how incredible the passage is. The temple of God is not some building. The temple is the believer himself. He says, you're the temple of the living God. Isn't it a, have you thought today that God dwells in you? And he walks in you? Says he walks in you? And notice how incredibly personal God makes this. He said, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is a quotation out of Leviticus 26.12. Spurgeon says, here is a mutual interest. Each belongs to each. God is the portion of his people, and the chosen people are the portion of their God. The saints find in God their chief possession, and he reckons them as his peculiar treasure. And I can tell you who gets the better end of that deal. We do, right? And what is the answer to these questions? How is this to be answered after Paul lays out five questions? It's so rhetorical. Verse 17 What's he say? Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you and ye shall be my sons and daughters. Notice he does have a gender differentiation there. And we have to do that these days, amen? That's from the Creator's lips. Saith the Lord Almighty. Now, what's interesting is this, between verse 16 and 18, Paul combines portions of Old Testament texts from Leviticus 26, Exodus 29, Isaiah 42, Ezekiel 20, and 2 Samuel 7. Now, we're King James guys, I love reading the King James, but I I do like how in the New American, they capitalize anytime you translate, uh, or anytime you have an Old Testament passage that's quoted in the New Testament, it capitalizes it. So if you ever compare other translations, you can do that and see what Old Testament texts, one of the only versions that do that. But he says, so, so these are passages that are highlighted in those three verses. He, he, he brings that together, and, so, and, and that just lets you see Paul's understanding of the Old Testament. So he says, come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord. And this is right in tune with Psalms chapter 1. Psalm 1, 1 says, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of who? The ungodly. Nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. What's interesting about that, you say, who is the blessed man? And why is he blessed? People say, well, because he delights in the law of the Lord. 
and he meditates in it day and night. That's true. But that's, that's after. That's after verse 1. The first thing that the blessed man is known for is what he does not do. Does that make sense? So before you can do what's right, you have to stop doing what is... And, and some of us have been there where we kept... We tried to do what's right, but we were still doing what's wrong, and we just couldn't seem to get out of it. We kept slipping around and sliding around, and, and you know what the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.22? But put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to deceitful lust. When you put him off, then you're, verse 23, renewed in your mind, and then what do you do in verse 24? that you may put on the new man. Before you can get to verse 25, you have to start in verse... Before you can get to verse 24, you've got to start in verse 22. You gotta, there's a putting off before there's a putting on. You know, I remember I, my, my grandfather was a pig farmer, and uh, as kids, we'd go out there and play around, and we always tried to ride pigs. It's like, an impo- it's like impossible. They're not built for that. But I grew up with four, three brothers, and uh, we had cousins out there, we would take one of those hay bale wires or like the, the, the uh, ropes and put it in the pig's mouth. I mean, these, some of these pigs were big, man. I mean, they're fast, too. They, they like, pigs are athletic. Like, you don't know how athletic they are. You get on their back, you're like, this thing is a stud, man. This thing would beat a horse. You get on the back, and it was impossible. You just, we would ride that thing, and you'd inevitably fall off, and you'd end up in the manure, in the puddles. I mean, you just, ah, land on me right, and, you know, the stuff, and, and, and we'd get home, and, and you know what my mom would do? She'd like, you ain't coming in this house. You know, oh, come on, Mom. You know, we'd take it around back. You know, we're in the city. We're down to our, I mean, she's, you're stripping down, down, boy, you know. I mean, she spray us down with the hose. I'm like, this is like, well, you're like from Germany? What are you doing to me? You know, you're abuse here. There is a, because there is a putting off. You, you don't just... I'll never forget, my dad used to come to my basketball games. He'd probably hate me telling this, but he'd work out at the farm, and, and uh, he'd come to the basketball games. Sometimes he didn't have time to go home and showering, so he'd, he'd try to put on some stuff, you know, grab some clothes, change in the car, get to the game. And I remember being in, like, elementary and, and junior high, and, uh, and he said, man, he's like this little preppy lady just kept saying, like, man, what's that smell? What's that smell, you know? He's like, would you be quiet? Somebody must have stepped on something. It's like, no, it's just me. I was out on a farm all day, you know. But, uh, you know, sometimes we try, to, we try to put the new man on top of the old. And it's decaying and, it's, and it, it needs to be put off, friend. It needs to be put off. So a question that needs answered is this as we kind of wrap this up tonight. What does it mean to be unequally yoked? And what does it not mean? You know, is a business partnership a yoke? Is a friendship a yoke? Is dating and marriage a yoke? Some have pushed yoke to the point of being more than it means here, and they turn into isolationists, totally separate from all things that are in the world. But that violates Scripture. Paul is not speaking of isolation. He just finished up in the end of chapter 5 saying, we're ambassadors for Christ. We're to go into all the world, preach the gospel. Christians are to go to the lost, bring them the gospel. God doesn't call us to live in isolation. I mean, in Matthew ten sixteen, he says, I send you forth the sheep in the midst of wolves. In John 17, in fact, he says, To the Father, he says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou should keep them from the evil. So what is the yoke? 
Now, not all associations in the world could be considered a yoke. Yokes have two characteristics, and I want you to consider this, and you have to apply this to your own self. I'm going to be specific about a couple things, but then you're going to have to apply it to other areas of your life. The first one is this. A yoke would refer to something that would not be easily broken. It's a kind of permanent relationship. You're yoked together with them. And when you're yoked together with someone, you're bound to them. Uh, they, they do not have a choice to be easily broken away. It's something you have to do together, even if it's uncomfortable. What they do, you're, you're there with them, right? If you're yoked, if two oxen, like one ox is like, I'm not plowing, the other one's like, I am plowing, well, you're going to have some pain and problem because you're hooked up together. That is why the church always applies this passage to marriage. Marriage is a kind of yoking two lives together. And it's not easily broken. In fact, Paul says in Romans 7 and 1 Corinthians 7, the husband and wife are bound together by the law. Paul always warned not to marry an unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, he says, only to marry in the Lord. People say, but I love them. I can change them. You know, the Bible doesn't teach missionary dating. I was a youth pastor. Kids are like, you know, but I'll, I'll win her over. You know, the following is a prayer Ray Steadman shares from a girl's diary she had written on her wedding day. She writes, Dear God, I can hardly believe this is my wedding day. I know I haven't been able to spend much time with you lately with all the... This is an actual entry. Lately with all the rush of getting ready for today, and I'm sorry. I guess, too, I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about all this since Larry still isn't a Christian. But, oh, Father, I love him so much. What else can I do? I just couldn't give him up. Oh, you must save him some way, somehow. You know how much I have prayed for him and the way we've discussed the gospel together. I've tried not to appear too religious, I know, but that's because I didn't want to scare him off. Yet he isn't antagonistic, and I don't understand why he hasn't responded. Oh, if he were a Christian, dear Father, please bless our marriage. I don't want to disobey you, but I do love him, and I want to be his wife. So please be with us, and please don't spoil my wedding day. Ray Steadman wisely responded to that prayer by saying, though it was a sincere prayer, she is very badly mistaken. Her prayer really sounds something like this, Dear Father, I don't want to disobey you, but I must have my own way at all costs. For I love what you do not love, and I want what you do not want. So please, God, please, good God, be a good God and deny yourself and move off your throne and let me take it over. If you don't like this, all I ask is that you bite your lip and say nothing and don't spoil my wedding day. Let me have my evil. That's a pretty stark reality, isn't it? Sometimes we ask God to bless our sins. Matthew Henry says, True pastors will caution their beloved children in the gospel not to be unequally yoked. I've had people who've left Lighthouse over these years at times when I said, I'm not going to marry you to that person. They're not even saved. And I'll meet with them. I'll try to evangelize their loved one, bring them to Christ. But um, why won't you marry somebody who's to, an unbeliever to a believer if they love each other? Because, because truth matters. Because um, how can you marry Christ with Belial? That person's not Satan. Well, they're not of their father in heaven. They're, there's only one other father. And Jesus called them of their father, the devil, in John eight forty four. Now, that person may be a kind person, a nice person. I'm not trying to put them down. I'm just trying to lift Christ up. 
It's, it's, it's what's best for them. And so, if you're, if you're dating, an, should I date an unbeliever? Well, why, in the, why would there ever be a reason to date someone if you weren't in the desire to marry them? But if I don't date them, I don't know if they'll ever get the gospel. So it takes you disobeying these commands for them to get saved? So is disobedience better than praying and, and, and trusting God as a sovereign God who can work all things together and bring salvation to souls? He doesn't need us to try to twist things around. Also, I think this can apply in businesses. I would never do a business venture with an unbeliever. I would never do that because you are yoked with them. And that's not easily broken, is it? I can, I can have, there's people in our church who've done that and they've regretted it and those things have caused great heartache and, and suffering. The second mark of a yoke is it's, not only is it hard to get out of, but it also constrains you. You're kept from acting independent of them. You must comply with them whether you want to or not. You know, Jesus is to be the Lord of our life. We're bound to Him. And some people can have relationships in their life that it may not be marriage, but it could be a friendship. And if you have a friendship that is so controlling over you that you can't be yourself, you can't be a Christian, you can't speak about the things of God, you bridle your mouth from what you would say as a Christian of Christ and of His Word and of truth because you don't want to make them uncomfortable. You don't want to, and you keep having to restrain yourself, constraining you, then I can tell you that is an unhealthy, yoked situation. People say, well, I'll, I'll change them. There's, um, I like what uh, Mark Dehan said in, um, in our Daily Bread. He said, the Brule River, which is on the border between Michigan and Wisconsin, flows for miles with clear, sparkling water. It's inhabited by an abundant population of speckled rainbow and brown trout. At one point, the Iron River, muddy and thick with sediment of ore and clay, merged with the Brule River. Where these two rivers join, the clear water of the Brule flows alongside the muddy waters of the iron for a short distance, but soon the waters are mixed into one stream. Now consider what happens. The clear waters of the Brule do not cleanse the waters of the iron, but vice versa. The muddy water of the iron pollutes the whole stream. Friend, that is exactly, exactly what happens to the Christian. And you know what the problem is in churches today? Christendom in the evangelical world by and large have thought they can reach the world by being more like the world. The pure, unadulterated word of God and Christ-exalting services focused on Him and His truth and His word are lessened because they don't want to make the unbeliever feel uncomfortable. When you start worrying about unbelievers in your church how they feel more than the one who sits on the throne in heaven, there is going to be a downfall of that church. It is a matter of time. Because ultimately what you're saying is, I worship them more than Christ. I care more of how they feel than what Christ feels. I can tell you separation, again, does not mean isolation. The world needs the gospel. We go to the gospel. We bring Christ to the world but, but the church is not designed for unbelievers. This is the gathering of the saved. We, we leave to evangelize. We gather to worship. Does that make sense? That's why I don't preach John 3.16 every Sunday. 
We give gospel invitations, people get saved many of the Sundays here, but our focus is to edify and build up the body so the body can go and be a light into the world. We don't want a church a mile wide and an inch deep. We need to know the truth so we can live the truth, especially in the dark days that we live. And the Word of God can do that. So we are friends to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. So two vital warnings Paul gives us. Do not isolate yourself, open your heart up, open your mouth, love people, and do not associate and yoke yourself to an unbelieving world. There is a danger both in isolation and there is a danger in association. And we need God's wisdom to navigate those things. Amen.